Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Then each of them went home while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they had kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Our gracious Lord, so illumine our minds and convict our hearts so that we, in our own meager and frail way, may be apt witnesses to thee. This I pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, in my Bible, there's a footnote to these verses here. And in the footnote, it says that this was unlikely in the original Gospel of John. Maybe you've studied this before. And indeed, there's a very good case that the Apostle John did not write this story of the adulterous woman. Most of the early trustworthy manuscripts of the Bible do not have this story. However, though, there are some people who do witness of the event. Some people outside of the Gospel of John here say that such an event happened like this. Starting in about the 4th century on, many scholars, when they were putting together the various manuscripts for the New Testament, had this story of Jesus dealing with the adulterous woman, and some of them put that story here in the Gospel of John. Also in some other manuscripts, it's found at the end of the Gospel of John. And in fact, a few of them it's found in the Gospel of Luke. Now, I find all that very, very interesting. Even though John does not include this story, and I think that's arguably the case. However, though, as the church began to grow in realizing what she must believe in, what she must know about Christ, how she was to live in order to be faithful to Christ, the church came to this conclusion that this story had to be told, that its authenticity and necessity was essential for the life of the church to the point by the 11th century on, nearly all the manuscripts of the New Testament, both Greek and Latin, include this story. What's important about this is that it teaches something that is very, very imperative for the Christian to realize. It wasn't there just because it was in the text. It was put into the text because it teaches something absolutely imperative for the life of the church. And this is what I think it teaches. We have to know the difference between giving witness to the law and giving witness to the heart of God. We must give witness to the law because God gave us the law, but we also must know when to give witness to the heart of God. 
When and why should we forgive someone of a just punishment they deserve for the sin that they've committed so that we may properly witness of the heart of God? Now, the Pharisees have an argument here. They really do. Adultery was a commandment that it was not to be performed. Everyone from Moses' own knew that adultery was against God's law that God had formed man and woman to be one flesh. Adultery breaks that one flesh, hence violates God's very created purpose for the man and woman in marriage. And in fact, in Leviticus 2, it is said that people caught in adultery, adulterers, should be put to death. They should be put to death for adultery. So this was serious. The, the Pharisees are arguing that God, who is the lawgiver, has given us a law, and in to honor God, we must be faithful to the law. And when someone breaks the law in order to honor God, we must punish them. Otherwise, it weakens the fabric of society and disrespects God. We need to punish the lawbreaker because God has given the law. There are times in which people who have broken the law need to be punished in order to honor and witness of. God is the lawgiver. However, Jesus doesn't buy their argument. He rejects it. He says of them that you're not just honoring the law here by wanting to stone this woman. You're actually wanting to condemn her for who she is. You notice they didn't bring the husband or the man that was involved in this. Many times throughout Scripture, we find very, very famous, influential people who commit adultery, and they're not put to death, David being one, Solomon being another. During Jesus' birth, Herod, the king of that area, was a well-known adulterer, and nobody tried to put him to death. There seemed to have been a selective rendering of the punishment to put to death an adulterer. Women were more likely to be accused of this than men. So when they bring the woman to Jesus, what he is seeing is not necessarily a way to honor the law, but what he is seeing is that they now have passed judgment on her existential moral worth, and he is going to tell them, you cannot do that. This is not the way of honoring God, to condemn somebody of their existential moral worth. Now, but no one has the slightest idea what he wrote in the ground there on those two different occasions. I'm not really for sure if we knew it, it actually would add that much to what the text is saying. But he does turn to the Pharisees and to say, You without sin cast the first stone. It's interesting he says, cast the first stone. Because in Leviticus 20, it doesn't say you should have stoned adulterers. It just says you should put adulteress to death. Why were they wanting to stone her, not stone the other culprit, and not stone the, all the other people that they had excused for their adulterous act? Why were they picking her out to be the one that they wanted to condemn? In their own arrogance, they thought they were better than she was. They thought they were in a position to be able to declare this person was not worthy to be alive, was not worthy to be respected in any way, not worthy to be even loved by God. They had condemned her existential worth. And that's what Jesus says they cannot do. We cannot condemn the existential worth of anyone even when they break the law. Even when in their sin they dishonor God, we still have to find something, some way to be able to respect 
their worth before God. Now, it wouldn't have been uncharacteristic for Jesus to have said to the Pharisees that, you're right, this woman is guilty. You're right, this woman needs to be punished. Let's find the appropriate punishment for her. Let's go ahead and respect the law. Let's honor God as the lawgiver. But he doesn't do that. He says, I don't condemn you. Even though maybe in the Pharisees' eyes, the woman's acts was conde were condemnable, but in Jesus' eyes, they were not. She still had existential moral worth, even though she was an adulterer. And so he does not condemn her. In fact, he forgives her of the punishment that she should have received. And the reason why, and this is the rub, at that moment, it was more important to show the presence of God through the forgiveness of the sinner than it was through the punishing of the sinner. And this is the distinction that I think is so hard to learn. It takes so much experience and discipline to be able to see to make this distinction, but it's imperative for the disciple to be able to make. When should I act in a way that honors the law, and when should I act in a way that honors the heart of God? How can I react to somebody who deserves punishment in order to bring witness to God as the lawgiver? But then, when are those incidents? How should I act in those occasions in which I am asked to forgive the just punishment of the guilty in order to witness of the heart of God? I don't think many can learn this, by the way. I think it's far easier to fall on just honoring the law I think it's more, what, secure for us to be able to condemn other people for their actions than to forgive them of their punishment. We definitely feel more certain of ourselves when we can say of others that we're not as bad as they are. We feel more confident that we've done what is right, that we worked hard and it's paid off. When somebody who has broken the law, committed adultery, out of weakness or out of intent, we're not as bad as they are. It'd be easier to say they are owed their punishment. And it gives me security that by me not committing that kind of sin, I'm right after all. I know that. You know that. But Jesus is telling us there are occasions in which we should be able to say, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. How do I know that? How do I know when not to condemn somebody? When to forgive them of their punishment in order to witness to the heart of God rather than punishing them in order to witness of the law of God. When do I know that? I want to read a couple of paragraphs here. It's from the last testimony of a fictional character in the novel, The Brothers Karamazov. And this is Father Zosima, or Zosima, some people pronounce it. He is dying and he is telling to his understudy, Alelusha, the wisdom that he has learned. And he says this, Can a man judge his fellow creatures? Remember particularly that you cannot be a judge of anyone. For no one can judge a criminal until he recognizes that he is just as such a criminal as the man standing before him. And that he perhaps is more than all men to blame for that crime. When he understands that, he will be able to be a judge. Though that sounds absurd, it is true. If I had been righteous myself, perhaps there would have been no criminal standing before me. If you can take upon yourself the crime of the criminal, your heart is judging. Take it at once, suffer for him yourself, let him go without reproach. And even if the law itself makes you his judge, 
Act in the same spirit as far as possible, for he will go away and condemn himself more bitterly than you have done. If after your kiss he goes away untouched, mocking at you, do not let that be a stumbling block to you. It shows his time has not yet come, but it will come in due course. And if it come not, no matter. If not he, then another in his place will understand and suffer and judge and condemn himself, and the truth will be fulfilled. Believe that. Believe it without doubt, for in that lies all the hope and faith of the saints. Work without ceasing. If you remember in the night as you go to sleep, I have not done what I ought to have done. Rise up at once and do it. If the people around you are spiteful and callous and will not hear you, fall down before them and beg their forgiveness. For in truth, you are to blame for their not wanting to hear you. And if you cannot speak to them in their bitterness, serve them in silence and in humility, never losing hope. If all people abandon you and even drive you away by force, then when you are left alone, fall on the earth and kiss it. Water it with your tears and it will bring forth fruit even though no one has seen or heard you in your solitude. Father Zosima tells Alalusha to fall on the earth and kiss it. To kiss the earth. What does that mean? I think it means being able to develop a big, tender heart to be able to sympathize, empathize, care for, be affected, be influenced by people who are in duress, pain, worry, stress, and in sin. To kiss the earth means to be able to emote in ways that are proper for people who are worried about the state of their soul. To kiss the earth, to have the tender heart so that you can see and register in other people's eyes and other people's actions and feelings what they're doing, what they're struggling with their own destiny, what decisions that are before them that they have to decide to be the person that they are. Without that ability, that sympathetic trait, without that big tender heart, we don't know when we should be able to forgive someone of their punishment and not judge them rather than to honor the law and to judge them for doing that. But it all makes such a difference in the world to be able to know that there are people who walk in it who can know the presence of God and communicate the heart of God. And I would say we need more people like that. We need more people that be able, or that, excuse me, that are able to walk among us, and because of the tenderness of their heart, they know when to forgive us of the wrongs that we have committed. The world needs to be able to know more about the heart of God. So, I recommend that you learn to kiss the earth, develop a sympathy in you, to care for those who are in pain, a tenderness in you to be able to be aware of those who are faced with the decisions that define their own identity and those who bear guilts that they cannot really bear. Develop that kind of compassion in which you too are moved to tears, by the other people's tears. To develop the ability to be able to say to the one who deserves punishment, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Amen. Go in peace, be warm and filled. You're dismissed.
For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.